A 14-year absence from China could be over for Facebook's owner Meta. The secret? A deal with a major Chinese video game company. A top investment bank saying big business now goes hand-in-hand -hand with geopolitics, adding some investments risk plummeting overnight. Redefining America's relationship with Taiwan. $80 million signed off by President Biden for the island's defense. But it's not alone. The money comes straight from American taxpayers, a move not seen in over 40 years. And a farewell to China's cutest diplomats. A trio of giant pandas has left Washington's National Zoo, marking the end of over 50 years of panda diplomacy. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. After being shut out of China for 14 years, Facebook is finding a way back into the huge market. According to the Wall Street Journal, owner Meta has reportedly cut a deal to sell its virtual reality headset there. NTD reached out to Meta for comment but did not hear back before airtime. The company reportedly signed the deal with Chinese tech giant Tencent. Under it, Tencent would become the exclusive seller of Meta's VR headset, set to hit shelves in 2024. Though the deal is tentative and subject to change. Should the deal play out as expected, it would be a significant move for Meta's return to the Chinese market. Meta's Instagram and WhatsApp are still blocked there. China's massive population doesn't have access to free information like here in the West. What many Chinese citizens read on the internet is strictly controlled by state-run censors. People inside China have to use special apps to get around the internet firewall in order to access platforms like YouTube and X, formerly Twitter. As for Facebook, Beijing kicked it out of the market 14 years ago, following protests in Xinjiang. Meta still makes money by selling Instagram and Facebook ads to Chinese companies. The CEO of a top financial firm has a message about big business decisions. You can't separate them from geopolitics. Peter Ortsog with investment bank Lazard told reporters that tensions in China, Ukraine and the Middle East have become a top focus for clients. He says gone are the days of making isolated choices based on raw data. Now, quote, you have to have the context. And goes on to add, quote, if you were investing today as a business in expanded Chinese operations, you need to be prepared for that to go to zero overnight. To acknowledge those effects, Lazard staffs a geopolitical advisory unit. It's tasked with analyzing world events and potential impacts on clients' businesses. Ortsak took up a CEO post last month, making a host of staff changes since then. He says the goal is to double the 175-year-old firm's revenue by 2030. As China continues flexing its military might near Taiwan, the U.S. appears to be shifting its strategy. President Biden recently signing off on an $80 million grant to Taiwan to buy American military equipment. But this isn't just another arms deal. For the first time in over 40 years, America is using its own money to support the island. Why the urgency? NTD's Stephanie Cox spoke with economic and national security analyst Antonio Graceffo for insight. Antonio, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on. The U.S. recently granted Taiwan $80 billion to buy American military equipment under the Foreign Military Finance Program. It's not a loan, and Congress doesn't have to approve it. That seems extraordinary. Yes, it is an extraordinary step. You know, normally uh, Congress approves the budget and they approve spending. If we give 
uh, Taiwan our own weapons. That doesn't have to be approved by, by Congress. So there's a number of uh, methods that are now being employed by the Biden administration to provide weapons to Taiwan, bypassing the approval process. And what does this grant say about the state of China's relationship with the U.S. and Taiwan? Well, it clearly means that the U.S. is taking the China threat very seriously. There's been increased aggression towards Taiwan by China, and the U.S. recognizes the fact that we need to step up our support of Taiwan, and Taiwan needs to bolster its uh, defense capabilities. And how would this latest grant impact Taiwan's defense capabilities, do you think? Well, it's going to help a lot. Um, Taiwan also needs to make structural changes within its own system, particularly its recruitment and training of uh, uh, young men that are on their mandatory military uh, service in Taiwan. But this is definitely a step in the right direction. I mean, in some cases, Taiwanese troops are armed with old U.S. weapons from Vietnam or even from World War II. So by giving them things from our stockpile, we're giving them newer weapons. They're not the absolute newest, but they're dramatically better than what they have. And Antonio, lastly, based on your expertise, are there any diplomatic avenues or multilateral approaches that you believe could impact and help Taiwan in its defense against China's advances and without, you know, without escalating tension in the region? Right. You make two very good points there. One is that we don't want to escalate tension. So if we all agreed to recognize Taiwan as an independent nation, that might trigger uh, a violent response from Beijing. Meanwhile, if we form coalitions and alliances in the area, then we can amplify Taiwan's defense. The, the new strategy is mostly about deterrence, just basically saying to China, look, if you invade Taiwan, the cost to you is going to be tremendous. Even if they succeed, the cost would be so um, um, detrimental to China that this would dissuade them from making that move. And of course, coalitions will amplify uh, that response. A ransomware attack against the U.S. arm of a Chinese banking giant. Hackers hit the New York-based U.S. subsidiary of the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, also known as ICBC. It's China's largest commercial lender by assets. The ransomware attack disrupted trades in the U.S. Treasury market. ICBC said it was investigating the attack that disrupted some of its systems and making progress toward recovering from it. Cybersecurity experts say they believe the ransomware came from Russian hacking group Lockbit. China's 50-year-old panda diplomacy taking on a huge blow in the heart of Washington. The three-member panda family made its way back to China Wednesday. The two parents ventured across the Pacific Ocean to the United States 23 years ago, calling the Smithsonian National Zoo home ever since. Although the adorable bears might have made their way into American hearts, the Chinese regime takes a harder view. Many see China's tight restrictions on pandas as a soft diplomatic strategy. China doesn't grant foreign zoos full custody, instead lending the bears out for set amounts of time and reserving the right to recall them at the end of those contracts. Now it seems even the pandas are caught in the all-time low of U.S.-China ties. Zoo Atlanta is now the only place in the U.S. where visitors can spot giant pandas. And with no word from either side on renewing that contract, those bears are also set to return to China next year. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met their Indian counterparts in New Delhi on Friday. At the top of their agenda, security in the Indo-Pacific region and aggression from the Chinese regime. Watch. Uh, we are promoting a free and open, prosperous, secure and resilient Indo-Pacific, including by strengthening our partnership through the Quad with Japan and Australia. 
Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin added that the U.S. is looking forward to strengthening the defense partnership between the two countries. At the same time, the Indian defense minister raised a major concern. We increasingly find ourselves in agreement on strategic issues, including countering China's aggression, promoting a free and open Indo-Pacific, and addressing regional security challenges. We share a focus on maritime security in the Indo-Pacific region, recognizing the criticality of safeguarding vital sea lanes and promoting stability. The meeting took place during the annual 2 plus 2 dialogue, which also saw Secretary of State Antony Blinken meeting with his Indian counterpart. The annual meeting aims to boost defense cooperation and align the policy objectives of the two countries in the Indo-Pacific region. The U.S. and India are now working on landmark deals, including cooperating on semiconductor manufacturing. The U.S. is also planning to supply and manufacture engines for Indian fighter jets and to supply MQ-9 Predator drones. At the same time, the U.S. is also in dialogue with China. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen kicked off a meeting with her Chinese counterpart Thursday in San Francisco. Yellen's talks with the Chinese regime's vice premier will last two days. She said the economic relationship between the U.S. and China is critical. Take a look. The United States has no desire to decouple from China. A full separation of our economies would be economically disastrous for both of our countries and for the world. We seek a healthy economic relationship with China that benefits both countries over time. The talks are designed to help lay the groundwork for an expected meeting between President Biden and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping next week, also in San Francisco. It will be on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC Summit. Yellen has met with a host of Chinese officials throughout the year, and this isn't the first time she has assured China that the U.S. doesn't seek to decouple. Ahead of the recent meeting, Chinese state media described the regime's major concerns. Those are supply chain restrictions, restrictions on high-tech products such as advanced microchips, and tariffs on Chinese products. The U.S. side has emphasized issues like intellectual property theft, human rights violations, and a potential invasion of Taiwan. As U.S. lawmakers echo calls to reduce battery reliance on China, what's the current state of the global energy chessboard? Here in the U.S., two automakers, General Motors and Stellantis, announced their new investment plan on Wednesday, focused on developing permanent magnet technology. Project leaders tout the effort as a promising alternative to reliance on rare earth automotive parts, a staggering 90 percent of which currently come from China. Over in Europe, Portugal holds a substantial reserve of over 65,000 tons of lithium. Europe is eyeing that supply, aiming to decrease its reliance on China. Lithium is a crucial component for making electric vehicles and various appliances. Portuguese environmental activists strongly oppose lithium mining projects, taking issue with what they describe as a lack of information of the impacts of it. But cutting dependency on China appears to be a trend beyond Europe and the U.S. 
mineral giants from Canada, Germany, and Australia are proposing the metal should be priced at a premium globally. That's in order to drive more countries to produce various resources for exports. Although manufacturers might face higher productions costs in order to shift away from China, right now, they say the focus is on quality and consistency of supply. Back to the U.S., Republicans are also calling for the Department of Veterans Affairs to decrease reliance on China for medical supplies. The situation caught public attention during the pandemic, highlighted by a shortage of masks and other life-saving gear. In a letter, the chairman of the China Select Committee and the Veterans Affairs Committee cautioned the VA about the lack of sufficient domestic production, warning that China could exploit that weakness and that it risks putting Americans in danger during future emergencies. The VA acknowledged the letter and said they are working to respond. Souring relations between Japan and China now seem snagged on koi fish. Exports of the fish from Japan to China have come to a halt, as the permit for the trade expired at the end of last month. Japanese officials said Japan submitted the necessary documents way ahead of the deadline, but heard nothing back. So far, we haven't received any information from the Chinese side regarding the current status of the procedure or the reasons for it. So the Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries are continuing to reach out to China and the authorities. Japanese officials say they will continue to approach China in order to resume the koi trade. The fish, appreciated as swimming jewels, represent good luck in life and business. In recent years, koi have become hugely popular in China and elsewhere in Asia. Japan's koi exports doubled over the past decade. One-fifth of them were shipped to China. Coming up, is the Chinese Communist Party killing off its future? Besides a demographic disaster, China is also staring down the barrel at a real estate crisis. That property sector once making up about a third of the nation's GDP. It's where much of the wealth of the Chinese people is invested. And, and that wealth is going to disappear overnight. How did China's real estate and demographic crisis arise? And how will they affect the country? American Thought Leaders host Yanya Kellick sat down with China expert and president of the Population Research Institute, Stephen Mosher, for details. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The world's second largest economy is grappling with two major challenges, a demographic problem and a real estate crisis. To understand the causes, how they could impact the country, and the potential for global spillover, American Thought Leaders host Yanya Kellick sat down with China expert and president of the Population Research Institute, Stephen Mosher, for more. Well, the Chinese Communist Party's real estate sector is is. In the, in the process of collapsing right now. Uh, and it, its collapse, of course, has taken longer than some of us thought, but when it, when it happens, and it's beginning to happen now, it will take place uh, much more quickly than, than anyone anticipated. Uh, the real estate sector, the property sector of the Chinese economy is about 60% of the economy. It's where much of the wealth of the Chinese people is invested. And, and that wealth is going to disappear overnight. Everyone in China, of course, aside from Communist Party members, is a victim of the Chinese Communist Party. But the people in the cities have been treated a lot better than the people in the countryside. And here's what happens in the countryside on the, on the property side of the equation. You will have local officials 
coming in from the township or coming in from the county level government or even the next level up, which is the prefectural level, and saying, we're going to raise this village to the ground and we're going to build an apartment complex on the ground where it stood. And the expectation is these poor villagers who've had their homes destroyed will have no choice but to buy apartments to live in because otherwise they would be homeless. So who benefits from this? Well, the local officials at the bank and the construction company and the local communist officials who are all on the take. Who suffers from this? Uh, the villagers who suffer twice. Not only do they have their homes destroyed, but they then are virtually forced uh, by local officials to buy into this apartment complex and further enrich the communist corrupt officials. And you can see how companies like Evergrande got to be the size that they are today. And you can see how this is kind of a giant Ponzi scheme because once you overbuild to a certain extent, and China has overbuilt now, they've got 70 or 80 million empty apartment buildings, 70 or 80 million empty apartment buildings, a stock that would take a generation to sell down even if they built nothing new, uh, and too few people to buy those apartment buildings. And so the economy, this giant Ponzi scheme, which, which is built on this kind of, of real estate development, is in the middle of collapsing before our very eyes. Now that's why Evergrande um, has begun to declare bankruptcy and can no longer issue bonds because no one will buy their junk bonds to build apartment buildings that no one will ever occupy. So, you know, lay out for me this, uh, uh, how the CCP enacts what you describe as this wanton destruction of human capital. Again, it, in the context of the reality of very significant economic growth since that time. Well, when I was in China, uh, the one-child policy began, and I think that, hands down, is the, the largest destruction of human capital that the world has ever seen. Uh, up until a few years ago, uh, Communist Party leaders in China were actually bragging about having eliminated 400 million people from the Chinese population uh, through forced abortion. In fact, back in 2012, uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, I was in a meeting with the former Minister of Health of the People's Republic of China, uh, claiming exactly that number of births had been, what he said, averted by the one-child policy. Now, it turns out that you can't kill off 400 million of the most productive, enterprising, hardworking people on the planet without doing severe damage to your economy over time. And that, in fact, has it has, is what has happened. Uh, not only, of course, is it a huge human tragedy, uh, the loss of all those children, the forced abortions and sterilization of, of all of those women who suffered greatly mentally and physically as a result. But think about what that means now in terms of these, uh, well, 70 million empty apartment buildings. Uh, the young men and women who would have married and started families and purchased those apartment buildings, perhaps, uh, were killed decades ago. And uh, they, you, cannot, you cannot bring them back to life now. So in killing off half of the last two generations, uh, China has, uh, the Chinese Communist Party has killed off uh, its future, literally. Uh, the only future that 
you know, a family has is its children. The only future that a nation has are its families and its children. And uh, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, what I call the biggest killing machine in human history by far, has uh, killed off uh, China's economic future by means of the 35 years of the one-child policy. Now, they didn't wake up to that fact until 2016. They announced a two-child policy in 2016, expecting a baby boom. They got a little tiny boomlet, and then the birth rate continued to fall. So it was a year and a half ago they announced now that they were moving to a three-child policy, basically saying to the Chinese people, the surviving young men and young women who had survived the one-child policy, basically saying you can now be fruitful and multiply. And the young people in China said, no, we're not interested. You've told us for almost four decades that, that children are expensive uh, and, uh, and that we should stop at once at, at, at having children. We should stop at one child. And now you're telling us that we should have two or three. Uh, we're not interested. Marriage rates continue to decline in China, and the birth rate continues to decline. Uh, the birth rate now is probably the lowest that we have seen in China, now I think they're beginning to realize that that they have, in effect, strangled the China dream of world domination in the cradle. Because with China's economy on the downturn, with China's population aging and dying more rapidly than any human population has in the history of the planet, uh, the 21st century will not belong to China, uh, in part because of the continued misrule of the Chinese Communist Party. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you soon.